I believe, and I'll just say this, that I don't think practitioners should be expected to do that on their own. I do think uh, institutions should come together to support this work. I do think our professional associations should come together and support this work. I do think the federal government has a stake in, in building out um, incentives for evidence-based prevention strategy. There's it's not, we're not saying, listen, you know, assistant dean or assistant director of whatever office on campus, this is your fault. We're saying we've got to go back to the drawing board. We've got to work more collaboratively and we've got to bring activists into the circle instead of what we heard over and over again is how many times they were kept at arm's length. They had doors shut in their faces. They were told by staff, look, I, I really empathize with you, but I can't. I can't speak up in a meeting about this. I just can't. It's too risky for me. Um, those are the things that we're, we're suggesting collectivity um, is essential to address. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, I'm joined by Drs. Ana Martinez-Aleman and Susan Marine, the two authors of their new book, Voices of Campus-Based Sexual Violence Activists, based on their research with more than 22 activists at 14 different institutions. This book provides historical, legal, and social context, as well as the activists' own voices and the author's analysis. Uh, thank you both for being here and sharing this with us. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity. True partner, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, author, and coach, helping leaders and organizations make transformations for leadership, learning, and equity. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm recording this from my home in Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Thank you both for being here and for joining us. Let's have you introduce yourselves. Susan, let's start with you. Sure. Thanks so much, Keith. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I'm Susan Marine. I am a professor and vice provost at Merrimack College, which is um, sited on the ancestral homelands of the Abenaki and Penacook peoples um, in uh, East Central Massachusetts. And I am um, delighted to be part of this conversation about this book that Anna and I had a vision of actually many years ago and finally brought to fruition together. So um, thanks so much for having me. Hello, everyone. Uh, as Keith uh, so nicely introduced me, uh, I'm Ana Martinez Aleman, and I uh, go by she, her pronouns. And I am currently in my office at Boston College. And uh, for those of you who know the general area of Southern Massachusetts, uh, the town of Brookline, Chestnut Hill, Newton, um, we're all located on the tribal homelands of Massachusetts people, and the continuing presence of the Massachusetts people and the neighboring Wampanoag and Nipmuc tribes um, are very strongly represented among uh, many of the local town area residents. Uh, so it is a continuing, lively, uh, and wonderful set of communities of indigenous peoples um, here in the eastern part of Massachusetts. Um, I, uh, as Susan has already noted, Susan and I had been working together for a few years on a variety of different projects. We spun some yarn on this for a little bit. And then finally, I think uh, we both sort of got to the point where uh, we were a little concerned over the previous presidency's many suspect decisions about campus life and the presence of um, any kind of experience for um, students on campus being pretty much neglected by the federal government. And then also the fact that that particular administration was taking some very, very um, severe positions on 
on campus life, especially around gender and women, et cetera. So Susan and I um, put our heads together and put on our big girl pants and we dove in. And that's why we're here today. Yeah, awesome. Well, it was a it was great to read, um, as I mentioned in the opening, the voices of the activists for sure and their perspectives and, and, and how they're seeing things. But you also offered a lot of context, history, social context and, and that. Um, I know this has an interesting story related to timing, uh, as you just alluded, sort of um, the two of you coming together. But Anna, tell us a little bit more about how this project came to be. Yeah, I mean, as 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 I said, um, Susan and I are lived very relatively close to each other, so that was very helpful. There were we frequented coffee places often, um, and uh, we had done some previous work, and we had intersections around um, gender in particular and the lives of women on college campuses, both at the fac you know faculty women as well as women students. Um, and then more broadly, so there's this idea of how campus culture does and doesn't support a, a variety of constituencies on campus. Um, so we finally settled here, and it wasn't a huge settle. I mean, it was a kind of an obvious thing. We both, our heads were exploding uh, during the Trump administration. And um, we finally just iron drafted out uh, a project where and I, I'm, I don't want to speak for Susan, but I'll do, I will a little. <laughs> um, we were both clear that we wanted to do something that um, that brought to the fore those students um, who were actually doing the work. As a, uh, and not to say that um, the survivors and the literature on survivors isn't important and we shouldn't keep studying it, but we really wanted to bring forth the voices of those students who are actually, you know, in it mm -hmm. and who are working to get the structures of their institutions changed. You know, they have smaller, more localized agenda, more national agenda, uh, et cetera. And we just were really committed to bringing those voices to the fore, all, all to really keep the spotlight on uh, gendered violence um, on college campuses and the role of institutions um, in that space, um, especially in light of the fact that at that time, uh, it was especially true that the federal government had abandoned um, that cause um, writ large, quite frankly. I don't know, Susan? Yeah, I think, yes, all those things are true. The moment spoke to the need to recenter um, activists in this conversation. And I think what Anna said at the beginning about, you know, focusing on the people doing the work is really important because um, colleges, you know, have taken up this issue on and off for decades, but it's students and specifically student activists that have kind of kept the fires burning who have held, continue to hold our individual and collective feet to the fire around what colleges are doing or not doing. Um, you know, I, 20 years ago, I worked with a band of incredibly committed student activists um, when I started um, in a contract position at Harvard around sexual violence prevention and education. And I think about them all the time. I think about the energy and the commitment and the fortitude that it took um, to take on an incredibly challenging and powerful institution around something that was a live or die matter to them. And I think ever since then, I've been interested in, compelled by, frankly, very humbled by the commitment of student mm -hmm. activists and what Anna and I saw happening around the the changes made by the Trump DeVos administration, it 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 didn't dissuade them. In fact, in many cases, it kicked up a, a new mm -hmm. um, set of collectives and energies around addressing the problems, and and that was again very inspiring. And we wanted to we wanted to help amplify what they were doing. Yeah. You know, and another thing that Keith, you know, noted. Um, 
that we certainly committed ourselves to, you know, we had the, the view in mind that, you know, activism and student activists and that energy had to be first and foremost what we were going to present. But we also wanted to um, keep in mind that it needed the context around, well, what's the history? What have institutions been doing? This is nothing new. We all get that. And again, it was focused on activism and activists. So what has been, um, you know, what's that groundswell linked to, right? Like what is its DNA, so to speak? So we really wanted to make a commitment to setting the foundation uh, because these activists clearly, um, you know, despite the fact that we all think, oh, you know, every four years they'll change over kind of thing, right? Undergraduates especially. Um, it was more that each institution had its history. Each institution had its history around this topic. Mm -hmm. uh, and the activists were very, very, very steeped in that history. But we wanted to bring that as part of um, the conversation. Uh, when, after we talk to activists, we start talking about, um, well, okay, great. What are institutions going to do, right? And we were committed, I think, um, at least, yeah, no, we were. We committed to trying hard not to just um, do the usual implications, I guess is the best way of putting it. Um, Susan and I are not known for pulling punches on the score, but um, so it was kind of easy. Uh, but right, you know, if institutions are complicit, then let's say that they're complicit. If institutions are not complicit, let's say that they're not complicit. So that was a moment for us to say what indeed needed to be said, given what activists had said and about the structures of the university in light of, um, you know, all that was going on within their institutions. Mm -hmm. You had 22 different activists from 14 different institutions. How did you come to these folks? How did you find them? How did you identify them? Oh, uh, um, that was... The smile, it was hard just listening, the yeah, well, smiles on both their faces, the they pavement. both just lit up. <laughs> it was a lot of counting the pavement. Yeah. It was a lot of work, but it was interesting. I mean, it was really good work, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, let, let's say, let's start with the, the most important thing that we decided very early on is that we would not take a look at activists on our own campuses. Mm -hmm. Like those were off the table. Uh, and that opened up a lot of space, I think, mm -hmm. uh, to talk about institutional uh, commitments, et cetera. Uh, and then we began to um, do what all good researchers do is we send out calls, we target uh, key informants, uh, we snowballed from some of the initial um, activists who had said yes. So all of that created this group. We were also committed to getting um, activists who, were, who identified as women of color, activists from different types of institutions in different regions of the United States, um, and again, you know, this isn't this isn't about you know a quantitative um, assessment of activist practices, but it, we wanted to get the sounds of activism from the activists from different uh, institutions and in different places in the United States. Um, but it took a lot of work. Um, but you just kept going, um, and then. Um, as we alluded to uh, before we came on the air, um, we did we had not anticipated COVID. Um, not that anyone did. Well, maybe someone somewhere did. But um, so we had all the intentions of figuring out how we were going to get to in, to these interviews, and it was going to be a commitment. We were developing, you know, funding opportunities, and then we realized, oh, we're going to have to actually what are we going to do, right? Because we can't go to these places. And then if there was a plus side to it, um, we wound up interviewing everyone on Zoom. Now we had to wait a little bit because students, as you know, overwhelmingly all of our, all of our um, participants went somewhere off their campuses, mm -hmm. whether to apartments or home or wherever. So we had to let that settle. And then we interviewed them virtually, which I initially thought, you know, now it seems like the dark ages, right? <laughs> like you thought, oh, the virtual interview was not gonna go well, but actually it was, it was great. It was, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. 
And and we also, I think another factor that we sort of wondered is whether the activists would be active um, in the middle of the pandemic. And what we found was they were just as committed. They were, of course, in many cases, not on their campuses, but they were doing work behind the scenes. They were building new campaigns. They were mobilizing each other, you know, during and after their return. Um, and they didn't seem to be losing their energy for the work at all. And that that it was even more inspiring because, again, we might have predicted that there'd be a little hiatus while they kind of all went off and, and you know, experienced the doldrums of the pandemic. But we didn't see that at all. Yeah. It's a, that's a theme already, right? The um, Rather than letting a pandemic let them go to rest, it energized them rather than let um, the administration's moves discourage them and energize them. I'd, yeah. love yeah. hear, I'd love to hear some of the themes that uh, were surprising to you, right? You talked with all of these folks from all of these different places. Um, I'd love to hear some themes that um, reinforce what you already knew and understood in different ways and some things that surprised you. What kind of came out? Susan, let's start with you. Um, I think a couple of things first that um, surprised me um, we were pleasantly surprised by the fact that several of the students who self-identified as activists were primarily peer educators mm -hmm. um, and thought of their activism as the kind of work they were doing, working to shift norms around their peers. Now, plenty of them were also marching, sitting in, doing social media campaigns, et cetera. But it was it was interesting and kind of heartening to us to see that the word activist um, it didn't scare anyone away. And in fact, it had a much more kind of supple and malleable meaning than we originally thought. Um, and that was that was both interesting and, and I think intriguing for us. Um, we were impressed by the depth of the analysis of the students. Um, they, many of them spoke from a position of having a really rich knowledge base of um, you know, not just activist and social movement theory, but intersectional um, social change theory and anti-racism and, um, you know, woke, quote unquote, woke politics that far exceeded what certainly either of us had um, during our college years. And they were incredibly um, committed to weaving anti-racism, anti-ableism, um, you know, queer and trans inclusive um, ideas and methodologies and approaches into their activism. That was really, um, that was beautiful to see. And, and they were very committed to that. And they did not set aside those principles in order for expeditiousness in other areas. Um, and I guess one more surprise that I'll just mention is that you know, we predicted that a number of them would self-identify as survivors, but many of them also were were not survivors, did not identify as such, but were deeply allied with survivors and recognized the need and the necessity of centering survivors in the work. Um, and so they would, you know, step back as needed to um, prioritize the ideas and voices of peers who were survivors if they themselves were not. And again, we found that um, moving and and meaningful. So. What else, Anna? Well, I did want to underscore a couple of things that you said, because I, I do think that, um, you know, and, and I'm going to rat you out on this one, Susan. Um, <laughs> Susan, Susan resisted um, um, thinking of um, gender violence education as activism. Uh, and well, she was like, no, 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 it's not, not, not. And I was like, well, wait a minute, you know, let's take a look at these data. And in fact, she's right in, in how she describes it now, today, that um, it, because part of the pro it's part of what was going on is that, you know, as higher ed researchers go, we, we, we tend to conceptualize student activism in particular ways. And oftentimes they're dated mm -hmm. and we don't mean them to be dated, but we sort of have this construct in our head. Right. Um, and you can say the same thing about, you know, political engagement, et cetera. So I'm starting a new project in the in January, for example, around this whole very question of what does it mean to be civically engaged in an era of, right? Yeah. So, but that activism can't be my grandmother's or my, you know, like when I went to college in the dark ages, right? It can't just be about, um, yes, um, it is about a march or yes, 
um, it is about take back the night or whatever. And I think that the gender education piece sort of made that obvious to us that activism evolves and it sounds simple now, but it really isn't. Um, it really does take on generational characteristics because then looping back to uh, Susan's comments about how, how much they focused on this notion of gender violence as not being sort of encased in a traditional binary, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that it had to be thought of intersectionally and not just in its very uh, rudimentary form of intersectionality. Um, that places this type of activism in now how we're thinking about activism as this neo-activism that um, isn't siloed right? Mm -hmm. Activists don't function in silos in the ways that certainly activism in the 70s did, or even in the 30s for that matter. But um, so those, those were, I think, to say that they were surprising, I would say that a little surprising, but they made all the sense in the world to us after the more that we listened and looked at what folks were saying. And it, um, I don't know, I was, I felt good about that because it suggests that these generations of students who fund their activism, they find activism in the ways that they want to engage with change, which is ultimately where we were sitting. Yeah, I really appreciate that because I think, you know, when I think about activists, I, I think I have some dated notions about what that is about uh, protests or, or um, social media campaigns, even uh, sit-ins, uh, Mm -hmm. signing petitions, things like that come to mind. And uh, hearing about the peer educators, prevention, uh, health promotions things as, as other venues to uh, create the change really makes a lot, it's not what would initially come to mind, but once you hear it, right. it makes, it makes really good sense. I mean, the funny, th I'm sorry, the funny thing that it's still, it's it still fascinates me, but I, I, because I, I study students' use of social media and things like that. So, because I remember, Susan, I, I was very clear that, like, I got money that says that, you know, yeah, activists are going to use social media pretty heavy-handedly. And, uh, and indeed, they kind of looked at us, well, they looked at me like I had two heads, right, in the sense that I was like, well, yeah, whatever. But, you know, no, we, you know, we group chat, we Slack, we, you know, so... Mm -hmm. So Web 2.0 is there because these are generational things about just being in the world, right? But they didn't switch over to sort of, for example, what we would what what we saw with the Arab Spring, right? Mm -hmm. That social media really was the vehicle for that kind of activism. It's in the background, it's around, but uh, it, it didn't really constitute the central engine of their activist evolution yeah. at all. I think that that's really interesting because I think uh, even though you were talking about these with these folks in 2020, uh, I think it, it shows a real shift. I think if you would have done this five years earlier, I think that would have been different. But social media is different how people use it differently. It sounds like they were using social media and some of those tools to communicate with each other, but it wasn't their primary vehicle of their message and trying to. That's correct. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Susan, what other themes uh, are really standing out to you that maybe reinforce some things or help you understand things? Um, one of the things that we were really interested in understanding is sort of what drives the activists and what motivates them. Um, and I mentioned already the, the link between survivalhood and or having people that they were close to who identified as survivors, that was certainly a heavy motivator. But I think for for others, it was also that idea that it's it's their community, they see an injustice and they're going to address it. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a student who said, you know, I was involved in this stuff in high school. The minute I got onto my campus, I started getting involved in it. And that was an interesting take for us because it it reminded us that First of all, students are far more interested in in sort of carrying over issues of concern to them from, you know, their earlier life into the present and now from the present into their later adult lives. Um, but also that that they recognize their own responsibility to take on the work. Um, and certainly, you know, the the rewards, the payoff was, I think, modest mm -hmm. for most of them. Uh, most of them did not feel they accomplished victory 
in the goals that they set out, which of course would be to eliminate um, sexual violence in all its forms on, a, on their campuses, um, but even modest goals like having administrators respond to them or having a, a new policy put into place or um, seeing their institution um, allocate resources to hire more therapists, for example. Some of those very modest goals weren't met and yet the students persisted. Um, and so that was also really interesting to us, sort of what keeps them going. And one of our um, activists named Morgan said, you know, it's kind of like having a runner's high. You you get going in the work, you collect yourself together with other activists, you do the work, and then you kind of feel that buzz of adrenaline and then it, it subsides because maybe you don't quite get the goal or the outcome that you hope, but then you, you get going again um, as more um, evidence of injustice comes to light. And um, I think that was really, again, it was inspiring. It was, um, it was a nice carryover of the legacy, I think, of the earliest rape crisis movements, you know, not even, I'm not even talking about 1970s rape crisis movements. I'm talking about, as we discussed at the beginning of the book, you know, all the way in, you know, post-Civil War reconstruction and um, the Recy Taylor movement, um, you know, largely, largely led by Rosa Parks and the NAACP in the 40s. I mean, they really didn't give up. Um, and these student activists, I think, really do credit to those movements because they're they kept going all the way, um, even in the lack of any real victories. Um, also very inspiring. Something that you mentioned um reminded me that that some of this wasn't in antagonism or adversarial with the institution. Some of this was a commitment to the maybe not the institution, but a commitment to yes. the community, to the campus. Yes. That I, I see oh, yes. so much more can be here and I want to create something better for yeah. yeah. There, you know, there. Love there. There was love there for sure. There's, yeah, and there's students. Mm. There's they are students um, whose, you know, generational um, sort of can enables them to see injustices, right? Um, and they have a better language for them than previous generations did. Um, you know, so for example, students who came out of high school and already had that consciousness, well, there's more consciousness about that now earlier and earlier. We went at it sort of saying, well, look, we're at, you know, this whole Me Too wave is is peaking now. Now, Me Too had been around for a, a while, but, you know, you have the high profile Hollywood um, cases, you know, and that's a narrative, but it's the, the narrative that they got around power. Mm -hmm. and sexual violence and they could communicate that um right. and you know that's i think part of also just the evolution of common uh, a common or normative knowledge mm -hmm. uh, for many folks in certainly in the u.s around oh right this is the kind of stuff that happens and it happens everywhere. It happens with kids. It happens in high school. It happens on team sports, um, et cetera, et cetera. So they come prepared. It is not new, mm -hmm. but now they have an agenda around their peers and their peers also have that same uh, vernacular, I guess, too. Um, and so it isn't about... Um, interesting i thought about this um when we were taking a look at the um the fun you know when we coded and everything that um a few of them certainly talked about they took courses because i just figured you know people who take courses on gender studies just sort of broadly understood are going to be far more conversant um, and some students did talk about that they had this particular class and this particular faculty member but honestly, it didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't really, really a dominant way of thinking about how they got to this consciousness mm -hmm. at all. Um, which was interesting, well, right? Was, I mean, was it was it peers and TED talks and social media and I think yeah, it was and I 
all, all of that. And I just also do think that um, just in general, you know, sort of the common culture, right? You know, what is it that, um, I don't know, anybody who watches TV, um, especially since, you know, Law & Order SVU is on 24 hours a day, <laughs> seven days a week. Um, so it's it's in the open space in a way that when I was in college, it wasn't, right? right? And those notions of powerful people exercising um, power with regard to sex and then also sexual violence just but now it, it's everywhere right you can see it and people talk about it in a variety of different ways um, and so therefore I can understand it gosh if the boy scouts are doing it or if the catholic church is involved or you know all of those things and that's a whole network of culture I would also argue that you know many of our um participants and our activists were on campus cultures that were you know had very strong fraternity cultures mm -hmm. and if you didn't get it coming in you got it then right it just became something that was very obvious to you so that when they felt that their social um their ability to be social on campus was restricted mm -hmm. and it was a real fear of violence they could start to name it in those particular ways um but yeah, I guess I'm hearing that there, the, the folks you talked to had a lot of context, a lot of knowledge from formal and informal places. But I also talk with a lot of college students who are oblivious to these issues and these dynamics. Right. But so, yeah. so they're not we're not saying that college students now understand a lot more, but these folks really did. Right. If you want to yeah. learn yes. more about this, yes. thing, you can yes. learn a lot. And it's very succinct. And you don't have to enroll necessarily in a course. Right. You can watch. TED Talks, mm -hmm. you can list, follow certain people on yeah. social media and learn. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I don't know. I mean, I would venture to say that, um, I mean, this is a good empirical question and I don't know the answer to it, but I'd make, I'd take a guess that a large number, a substantial number of people on college campuses who are prone to be the objects of sexual violence have some awareness mm -hmm. right they may not be as deeply um sort of invested in a, in a knowledge base about it um but they know it mm -hmm. um i don't think that you can walk on any college campus today and not get it because there's always the emergency button mm -hmm. right um, and that has to be there for a reason. Well, what's that reason? Oh, now maybe I don't really think about it in as deeply complex a way that maybe some of the activists did. And I think that's what sets them apart. Right. Um, you know. Um, they They've done the work to understand not just the issue itself, but the underpinnings of the issue, the cultures, the norms, the unspoken, you know, sort of hidden curriculum around why certain environments are riskier fraternities, division one sports, you know, cultures, et cetera, et cetera. They, I mean, their analysis was, was there and it wasn't, um, it wasn't, hyperbolic and it wasn't reactive and it wasn't, well, I heard about this one thing that happened and therefore I know that these students are the likely perpetrators. It was understanding that there's a body of knowledge about this and and that they had access to it. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, carrying forward the, the influence of activists before them. So it wasn't as if they had multi-generational mm -hmm. networks or relationships, but they certainly had like the seniors were talking to the first years. Mm -hmm. And so if nothing else, they had this intertwined way of sharing information with one another, of talking across experience, of building their own knowledge by talking with one another. Yeah. And yeah. frankly, you know, strategizing together. And sometimes they look to other institutions to see what kind of strategy was going on elsewhere. And sometimes it was completely internal. Um, but whatever the case, I mean, they were very deliberate about what they did. It wasn't, um, 
they weren't sitting around going, well, we don't really know what we need, but we're mad about it. They had very clear goals, very clear agendas, um, very clear ideas about what the change work that needed to happen looked like. And and for them, the hardest part was they were often met with either resistance or indifference, not really hostility, but definitely indifference and resistance from the people they were turning to for help. And and largely that was um, other, you know, college administrators, student affairs and and at Al. I find that interesting that they really were connected to what the seniors had done and what had come before them. And I'm, I'm just curious now if some of that has been lost, right, in, in COVID years and pandemic and a little bit more isolation, a little bit more online classes. And I wonder if some of yeah. that, um, is, that the question. transfer is, is maybe the yeah. obstacle yeah. to put in the way. It's a good bet. I mean, there's some data just came out recently on sort of validating what we were we had all been thinking was that you know the classes that got hit with with COVID the hardest didn't sign up to join any clubs right like there was so that student um engagement in those kinds of uh co-curricular things which is sort of it just dropped and then now it's picked back up again so it would make all the sense in the world um that that's the case um and, and you do wonder how it affected different types of institutions differently because everybody had their own everybody had their own set of moving goalposts during uh, COVID. When you came back, when you wore masks, you know all these things. Um, but I, I I I think that's a good bet. I would bet that that's true. Well, you two have uh, had so many of these conversations, and as I mentioned, you're, you're, the context mm-hmm. that you bring and that you offer the readers is really, really helpful. You're not just reporting what these students shared, although you do. You're also offering, as you've done here, a lot of that context. I'm wondering what you would offer practitioners. I'm imagining folks listening are many activists themselves, uh, feeling mm-hmm. seen and heard, but also practitioners on campus who are maybe in campus leadership or maybe investigating and adjudicating supporting survivors, doing prevention education, and much more. What would you offer practitioners who uh, would like to do better? Well, we definitely, um, I think, took a somewhat provocative stand in saying that we think we can and must do better. Mm -hmm. Um, And specifically that where we see the work sort of lagging or falling down Um, across almost every one of our participants' narratives um, is that we saw quite a few instances where um, students were very aware that uh, folks with whom they wanted to partner or collaborate were disinterested in their input, their perspective, and their experience. Um, And so we sort of rekindled the call for a more collaborative and participatory approach to policymaking um we feel that strongly that our legacy as you know current and former and forever student affairs administrators is that um you know we we have a real uh both ethic and moral imperative to partner with students on the change the changes that are needed on our campuses um that making policy and making decisions about how to handle campus sexual violence without their input, without their involvement and engagement is is a, a failing proposition at best. Um, and we really did invoke that, that call in our effort to say, look, we're all in this moment of facing these very real pressures. Um, compliance culture is a real thing. Um, doesn't mean we have to acquiesce to it. Neoliberalism has created structures that make us feel as if we have to operate within a very particular paradigm of of productivity and um, emphasis on on various forms of productivity. And uh, human productivity is never um, assured or advanced in an environment where violence is present. Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. So we sort of, you know, took on some of those those arguments. Um, those invocations, because we believe strongly that our profession has the ability to engage in this way productively, that we've done it many times in the past, 
historically and otherwise, and that it's really where our energy um, going forward needs to be placed. We cannot continue to put all of our eggs in the federal government basket mm -hmm. of Title IX enforcement. It's simply not going to cause the end to sexual violence that we all mm -hmm. um, envision. Mm -hmm. What else, Anna? What else did we? Uh, no, no. I mean, I think that that's a that's a, a, a great summary. I mean, look, you know, the reality is that right. So we have certain compliant. We have compliance. It's shifted a little bit. Every new administration manages to do something or another. The reality is that institutions have to comply with something, and there's always. And you know, every university council is very well aware of litigation that's possible, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of it, you know, you sort of recognize that these are institutions, and that's the nature of institutions. Um, having said that, I mean, I, I, I do find that, um, or at least with with the activism and thinking about what all troubled them the most, um, at, at its core is about recognition, right? That um, they weren't literally recognized. And what they meant by that is like, look, we can give you ideas and, you know, here's some low hanging fruit right? This isn't going to be, we're asking you to, you know, get some donor to give us a hundred million dollars to do X, Y, and Z, but these low hanging fruit, because ultimately one of the low hanging fruit for me, uh, as somebody who thinks about this a lot is institutions invest a ton, both time and money in assessing student engagement. Um, and in assessing, I think a very, very narrow view of the quality of the student experience. And in those measures, they're not asking questions about this, right? So I want to be able to be that administrator says, hey, the next time we get the Nessie survey, can we add questions about, you know, what is it like to be, to be you know, uh, someone who identifies a, as a woman to go out on a Saturday night on this particular campus? I don't know. That was a really bad item that I just <laughs> said. <laughs> oh, but my God. Don't let me. Yeah. Something in that direction. Um, yeah. Right. And I, and I because the activists, you know, are, are very pragmatic. They get the big stuff. Right. But they, right. what they don't get is like, like there's these small points where this would make a great difference in the experience on campus which is ultimately what we want you know we want people students we want students to have high quality experiences um that says that the institution cares about your safety your ability to take care of your studies your ability to make friends with whomever um, and that's what they, I think, brought to the table. They were very pragmatic. Here are the changes we can make. See us, include us. We can help you think about that thing. Like, you know, uh, now I can't remember who said, but, you know, we can help you think about the um, the van that is the safety van that goes around. You know, like, um, or we can help you think about the fact, oh, I remember now, one institution um, closes its clinic at some absurd time, like at eight o'clock at night on a Friday night, and it's not open on Saturday. Well, when mm -hmm. do most of these, you know, violent acts happen? Like, all right, that does mean a bigger budget to staff, et cetera. But that in their mind is very low hanging fruit mm -hmm. if you want to address this issue. Um, so yeah, I found them incredibly pragmatic around changes to administration, administrative, behavior like that yeah. any any other uh things you would offer practitioners who are i'm imagining overwhelmed doing their best yeah i mean that's like they're doing as well as they could be yeah just, we don't want to help us out <laughs> we don't want to sound like why aren't more people fighting this but in effect what we're saying is first of all um it is going to require institutional courage to borrow jennifer freight's um concept um, individual courage and institutional courage to take a hard look again at the ways that our cultures manifest and support and, um, you know, perpetuate the acceptance of violence along with violent acts themselves. 
Um, it's going to take collective energy and insight and knowledge and understanding of the problem. And that's going to mean working together, activists side by side with faculty, with administrators. Um, it's going to take a re a reimagination um, of what uh, is, you know, is needed. And because what we've done so far has really made very little of a dent in the problem. Um, and I believe, and I'll just say this, that I don't think practitioners should be expected to do that on their own. I do think uh, institutions should come together to support this work. I do think our professional associations should come together and support this work. I do think the federal government has a stake in, in building out um, incentives for evidence-based prevention strategy. There's it's not, we're not saying, listen, you know, assistant dean or assistant director of whatever office on campus, this is your fault. We're saying we've got to go back to the drawing board. We've got to work more collaboratively and we've got to bring activists into the circle instead of what we heard over and over again is how many times they were kept at arm's length. They had doors shut in their faces. They were told by staff, look, I, I really empathize with you, but I can't. I can't speak up in a meeting about this. I just can't. It's too risky for me. Um, those are the things that we're, we're suggesting collectivity um, is essential to address. Yeah, I, you know, Su Susan's captured it very well. I mean, for me, you know, if I can editorialize all those points, it really was a case of um, <clears throat> sort of pernicious irony, right? Because this is a culture of compliance. This is a culture of fear of litigation, which is all driven by evidence, right? Um, so institutions, according to our activists, were loath to actually ask them to help them gain evidence, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. They always like to look at evidence if, you know, someone who's been accused now then sues them back, Right then all right. of a sudden it becomes a culture of evidence gathering. But for the, the, the survivor who's been victimized by this whole thing, um, you don't have a dominant narrative of evidence gathering that is viable, meaning that activists can actually help mm -hmm. practitioners really think through how is it that one can gain that kind of evidence and then have evidence sharing to then create a different culture. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's a maybe maybe irony isn't it is not it is ironic at the same uh, at the same time that is that's duplicitous et cetera et cetera. But um, they are in the know; they know exactly what's going on, and they can tell you and they can provide you evidence. Um, and they're ignoring them. Yeah, they're just ignoring them. That's my big takeaway. Rather than meet these activists with uh, indifference. Um, see them, hear them, include them, and engage them as assets that can help you uh, do things better and choose different modules, uh, look at the safety van, look at clinic hours. Um, yeah, seeing them as resources is the yeah. big shift, right? That's the paradigm that we would like to sort of flip that, right. you know, they could serve the institution as a resource because there is no institution on the planet who is going to say that, they are pro-sexual violence. Right. So given that, you know, these are resources for us. And um, and maybe 100% of the things aren't going to be useful, but maybe 80% are going to be useful. Um, right. Wonderful. Well, we are running out of time. Um, it feels like <laughs> we just got started, but this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. And we always like to end with the question. What are you thinking, troubling, or pondering now? Might be related to our conversation, might be related to other things going on. And also, if you want to share where folks can connect with you, go ahead and share that. Uh, Susan, let's start with you. Sure. Um, I would welcome the opportunity to connect with anyone who's um, committed to the goal of ending sexual violence on campuses. It's definitely the thing that uh, gets me out of bed every day, and I think about all the time and every day. And um, continue to feel a sense of urgency around, um, please reach out to me. I'm um, at Merrimack College and um, my, I assume our contact information will be listed on the episode, um, but please, please do reach out. I think the thing that I'm thinking about the most now is um, 
trying to better understand how the energy and the commitment that student activists um, leverage on their campuses um, in college can and does translate to later life social change work. Um, I was involved student activist. I think most of the people I know who do this work were and are. Um, and I'm interested in thinking about um, whether now we could be mobilized in some way that would be useful mm -hmm. to activists instead of thinking of it as something that we had to leave behind because we're no longer um, you know, working in, in these environments. So I'm interested in the long-term both commitment and solidarity of mm -hmm. activist movements and how we can continue to build that and frankly sustain our yeah. younger, um, deeply committed um, colleagues who are carrying a lot in their day-to-day -day lives. I think about that a lot. Sustain the people and sustain the movements, right? Exactly, yeah. both, yeah. both. Anna, what are you uh, pondering these days? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, um, I've been pondering because I ponder a lot about race and ethnicity as it informs and doesn't inform gendered behavior for a long time. And I do think that that's still at the fore for me. I don't think that... Um, I'm satisfied, um, certainly at that intersection of um, sexuality and um, race sexuality and uh, on a college campus um, and how that differs, for example, at a historically black college and university where there are interesting phenomena around that. And then on a predominantly white camp, you know, all these differentiations, but at their core is how is it that the sexualization of race is all over campus, right? Um, so I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, and then more to the point, you know, how is it that you don't, why, how, how? Yeah, uh, how, how is that communicated? And why don't we see that communication, I guess is, is really more the point because um, you don't hear much about it. You really don't. Um, and that in and of itself is telling. So I am at Boston College um, and I think, you know, please feel free to reach out. Um, happy to engage in conversation with folks. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you both. Uh, the new book is called Voices of Campus Sexual Violence Activists, Me Too and Beyond. It's available now. It's, uh, as I've mentioned a few times, it's it's great sharing these activist perspective, learnings, wisdom, insights, but also a lot of history, social context, and analysis that you both have continued to share today. So thanks for your great work highlighting these folks and also bringing yourselves and your scholarship to it. Yeah, thank thanks. you. Labor thanks to you. Yeah, yeah thanks, Keith. <laughs> uh, thank you both. And thanks also to our sponsor of today's episode, Simplicity. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success, and accessibility services. To learn more, visit simplicity.com or connect with them on social media. Huge shout out to our producer, Nat Ambrosi, makes all of us look and sound good. <laughs> Thanks to our audience. We love the support for these important conversations from our community. You can help us reach even more folks by subscribing to the podcast on YouTube and our weekly newsletter, which announces, announces each new episode on Wednesdays. I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to our two fabulous guests today, uh, their great work and their new book, and for sharing it with us. And to everyone who's watching and listening, make it a great week. <laughs>